perfectly imperfect number seven. Yeah, seven. Seven. Seven out of ten. And this one, we are going to be doing this box that all other boxes point to called rest. <laughs> rest. Uh, and we're actually going to be talking about rest and play. How do those two fit together? What does it mean to have rest and play in the Christian life? We're going to look at it from a biblical perspective um, and see is this something that's present in Scripture? And if so, and we find it, what does Scripture have to tell us about play and rest? Having those two together. Okay? Wild, ferocious animals. Have you ever seen them? Have you ever seen them in distress? Wild, ferocious animals, like a typical house cat that gets thrown into a bathtub. Have you ever seen that? Wild, ferocious animal, I'll tell you that much. Say, for instance, just imagine this. Wild, ferocious house cat stuck in a bathtub, and they do not like water. They will, they will end their own lives trying to remove themselves from the water. And it, for some reason, is incapable of getting out of this water. And it's fighting for its life. And it's clawing at the water, which is doing nothing. And it's paddling, but it's not a dog, so it can't doggy paddle. Now, imagine what would happen if you tried to reach in and save this wild, ferocious animal from the clutches of its watery grave. What would happen? You would die. In its attempt to save itself, you will die. Survival instincts within this wild, ferocious animal take over. And this ordinary house cat becomes a puma. And it is bent on saving its own life. And in its attempt to save its own life, it just might end its own life. Because... It will not accept the hand of help, which is being offered to it. And in this mission of self-preservation, any hand, whether it's a helping hand or a hurting hand, that is extended towards this wild, ferocious beast is seen as a threat that will push it closer and closer to its grave. And it will reject and it will attack, and it will claw the arm in half because it's a wild, ferocious animal. An animal in distress, especially a cat around water. Sometimes we're like that. Have you ever been like that person who doesn't accept help? Who is in desperate need of help, and when somebody asks you, because of your own sense of I must do this on my own I must save myself because nobody else can you reject the helping hand of a friend and perhaps even reject the helping hand of God as he moves in your life in fact you're bent on doing even as much as saving yourself 
I will create my own salvation. I will save my own life because I will be good enough and I will do good enough and I will work hard enough and I will keep my appearance up enough and I will keep people away from the dark spots on my heart enough. And we try to make ourselves enough. And like that ferocious wild puma of a cat, we reject anything that would say otherwise or that would point to our weaknesses. Right? Well, I want to talk about the direction of our life. Like, what is this about? What is our true north? You know, a compass as northeast, southwest? The needle of a compass is always pointing to true north, the magnetic north of the earth, right? And it's lined up with the magnetism of the earth itself. So whichever direction the compass is facing, the needle is always pointing to the north. Now, what direction is our needle pointing to? What direction is our true north? Where are we headed? Cool. Salt and light. What does it mean when Jesus says that he wants us to be salt and light? What does it mean when he says the salt of the earth will lose its saltiness if it's not used the way it's meant to be used? Well, we know that there's like the many uses of salt. It can like preserve things. It can make things taste better. But we have a special, unique use for salt up here in, here, up here in the mountains. When it gets all icy, we go outside. We don't want to be alive at this moment in time because it's like 15 degrees and we're like, shoot me now, right? And we come outside with our eyes half shut and our snow boots on and we wish we were still in bed and we've got our bag of salt. And we stick our cup or our shovel into our bag of salt and we go about salting the sidewalks, right? Because the ice on the sidewalks will cause damage. It's slippery and will fall. Is everybody here falling on ice? Everybody? Yeah. It's, you're not a mountain man or woman until you've slipped on the ice, right? And when I moved up here, I was bound and determined, like, oh, it happens to everybody else, but it's not going to happen to me. It happened twice to me. And I guess now I'm a true mountain man. Uh, but we salt the sidewalks. And plows come through and salt the streets so that this slick ice is not causing damage to the people who would walk on it or drive on it. Right? The salt because of its saltiness, melts the ice and makes it no longer slick but broken up in such a way that it is not a danger. And what happens if that salt lost its saltiness and we were sprinkling the sidewalks with, I don't know, just some pellets? It wouldn't break up the ice and it wouldn't melt the ice and it wouldn't do its job because it's no longer salt. But because the salt retains its saltiness, when we throw it out amongst this dangerous ice, this death-causing ice, 
it actually saves lives. It actually makes the streets and the sidewalks safer because the salt, with all its saltiness, has entered into an atmosphere and caused its own influence on the area. And in the same way, when God calls us salt and when he calls us light, if we lose our saltiness, we're not effective anymore. But if we can go into the icy, frigid atmosphere of the godless areas of this earth, and we can do our good, and we can make them filled with the very presence of God, and because of our saltiness, we can make life livable for people who otherwise would not have had a chance. And we can feed the poor, and we can care for the disenfranchised, and we can give hope to the hopeless. That's what it means. And that's our true north. That's the direction that we're headed. A place where the hungry are always fed, and the poor are always cared for, and the hope, the hopeless, are no longer hopeless. So, what happens when we take this commission, and we take this true north, and we do it with the motivation of fear? If we do it with the motivation of fear, do you remember the movie Johnny English? Johnny English, it was fantastic. It, um, the guy who plays Mr. Bean, what's his name? Roland... Rowan Atkinson, precise. Thank you, Kimbo. Uh, Rowan Atkinson plays, uh, it's almost like a spoof on James Bond, you know? And he thinks he's tough stuff, but he really isn't. And he keeps, like, almost saving the day, but it's by accident. It's never what he intends to do. So there's this part in the movie, Johnny English, where he's chasing this imposter pope. Remember? He's chasing the imposter pope. He's not the real pope. The real pope is tied up and bound somewhere. The imposter pope is some other guy dressed up in all the pope's clothes and in a mask that precisely resembles the pope. And Johnny English dives in there and figures out this isn't the real pope because it just so happens that he has a tattoo on his lower back. And when he is reaching for something, his tattoo is exposed and it says, Jesus has come and looked busy. That was the funniest thing ever. Jesus is coming <laughs> look busy. As if that's what we're to do. <laughs> Great place to put Oh, never mind. As if the king of kings... could be duped by coming to an earth and seeing busy people and confuse them for being people who are actually out there being salt and light. The motivation behind busyness is fear. The fear of disappointing someone. If we spend our lives 
trying to not disappoint people, we will disappoint everyone. Because we can't make everyone happy. And if we can't make everyone happy, we can't make anyone happy. So a life motivated by fear, trying to look busy with doing good things, will run from venue to venue, from location to location, figuring out what people want and what will make them happy and doing that. Trying to keep away the disaster of disappointing someone at all costs. But is the fear of disappointing people our true north? Is that really what we're here for? Is that being salt and light? And is that really accomplishing anything? Busyness versus working. Working is real. Busyness is what Martha was doing running around the house while Jesus was there, trying to do all the right things and getting mad at her sister Mary for sitting at Jesus' feet. Come on, Mary, get with the program. Jesus is watching, look busy. It's essentially what she's saying. Jesus corrects her and goes, Martha, Martha, don't you get it? I'm happy about what Mary is doing, sitting at my feet. As much as you're trying to please me by looking busy, I don't want pretense. I don't want you to pretend you're doing good stuff. I don't want you to live life like you think that you're making the world spin around on its axis. That doesn't make me happy, Martha. What makes me happy is Mary before me, finding out who I am and who she is in me. Being present with me and me being present with her. There will be stuff that Mary can go out and do in time. But at this moment, she's doing precisely what I want her to do. Because as she sits at my feet, what she realizes is that she does not make the world spin on its axis. Jesus makes the world spin on its axis. And when we stop doing and stop being busy and stop trying to not disappoint people enough, long enough to sit still and listen and observe, what we start to see is that the world spins without us making it do so. And some people can't handle that reality. It would be too depressing of a reality. Well, let's talk about David real quick, right? David, the mighty warrior, the warrior king, also the warrior poet. David 
who was daring enough to step out in a one-on-one -on -one battle with a giant and take him down. Like, what kind of gumption do you have to have to be like, oh, the best warrior of the Philistines, and I'm a shepherd boy. I got this. And step out there with my little leather sling and take down a giant. Most people would fail simply because they didn't even think they could do it. Yet David, with all his daring greatness, steps into the arena and fights the giant. He is a warrior, and he's also a shepherd. He hangs out with sheep all day. He knows that they're weird and temperamental and fluffy and whatever sheep are. And he knows that they're dumb. Well, sometimes a little too dumb for their own good. Sometimes they'll put themselves in danger. And without their shepherd leading them, they would walk straight off a cliff. They need guidance. Well, not only is David a warrior and a shepherd, David is also a poet. He wrote poetry, and a lot of times he wrote it to the Lord. So we're actually going to look at a psalm, and it's a psalm of David, and it's a well-known psalm, and it's Psalm 23, probably one that everybody knows. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The poet part of David tells me that not only does he have strength enough and dare greatly enough to take on a giant in battle, but he's also soft enough and in touch with his own soul enough to speak poetic words. Two great qualities to have. Let's read what this says. This well-known psalm. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In fact, you go and prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What's David's true north? The house of God forever. That's where he's headed. That's where his needle points. That's where he's going. 
So as he fights battles against giants, that's where he's going. As he leads sheep, that's where he's going. As he lets his sheep lie down in green pastures, that's where he's going. As he goes with them through the valley of the shadow of death, and he protects them with his rod and his staff from any danger, that's where his compass points, the house of God forever. Psalm 23 tells us three important things that God does as our shepherd. He leads us just like he led David and just like David led his sheep. Maybe that's why David had such this image of God as a shepherd. He could relate to it. Not only does he lead us, he restores us. When we're weary, he lets us lie down in green pastures. He is with us. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, even when life threatens to cave in on us, and we think, oh my gosh, I will not make it out of this alive. I must claw at anything that attempts to help me. He is the good shepherd. And the direction that he leads us, and the place where he restores us, and the place where he is with us, is the house of God forever. And as we're headed to the house of God forever, we might just pass through the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, in this life, suffering is not optional. You don't click, get to click the thumbs down button like on Pandora, and it just skips that track. You're like, I can't. I don't have enough patience to deal with this nickelback. I will thumbs it down, and I will move on, and this nickelback will be taken away from my life. I wish there was a no nickelback button. Um, no. We don't get to thumbs down suffering. We don't get to thumbs down the valor of death. It's inevitable in this life when we still have enemies. But what's, what he says is not that he will remove the valley of the shadow of death, but that he will be with us in the valley of the shadow of death. God with us. And when we're there and when our enemies are all around us, and when our life feels like it will cave in, he said, right here, in the deepest, darkest place, when I promise I got you, I will prepare a table right here in the valley of the shadow of death. A table where you can sit and you can eat and you can be refreshed and you can rest and you can stop fighting the battle because you don't make the world spin on its axis. I do. And when you sit and rest and eat at this table, 
and stop pretending and stop looking busy to make me happy as if that made me happy. You will see that I fight your battles for you. You will see that I keep death away from you. You will see that you can sit right here in the valley of shadow of death and eat and feast and be refreshed. And that's anticipating something future, something heavenly, something in the house of God. And we'll talk about that. But what do we do? What does David say he does in this psalm? And responds to these things that God does as he offers us rest. David says, I'll rest in the presence of my enemies. I'll stop fighting that battle because I'm just here with you. Even when they threaten me and close in on me, I will rest in your presence and in the presence of my enemies because you're with me here. And I will dwell. I will stay here. He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall abide there. I shall stay in God's house forever. Well, here's the question. Is the house of God forever here and now? Or is it future? The house of God forever is foretelling something in the future. The eternal rest. He's not saying I'm going to plop down right here on this stool and I will chill in the house of God forever. Although that's part of it. And that's how I get through the here and now. But with eyes looking forward and with my true north set to the house of God forever, I will go to meet it. Or I will go to meet him as he comes to meet me. I will run him and he will run to me like the father running to the prodigal son. Second Samuel 6 also refers to David. And Second Samuel is a history about the nation of Israel and specifically focuses on its kings. So we learn about Saul, the king who does great things, and then his life and ministry and kingdom and everything that he's to do, his work, the way that he is supposed to spend his life, kind of disintegrates. And he dwindles into this fleshly, jealous, weirdo kind of guy. <laughs> And then we see King David, who we've been talking about, that one who slew Goliath. 
2 Samuel 5, David's anointed, anointed as the king of Israel at 30 years old. And we're told that David was a man after God's own heart. He is the warrior, he is the shepherd, he is the poet. Bible says that he was ready, which means he's good looking, right? Warrior, shepherd, poet, good looking. And he has a heart that is after God's own heart. And some good things have, right? You're like, I'll take I'll take those. Well, as David is king of Israel, 2 Samuel 6 tells us of the Ark of the Covenant coming back to Jerusalem. The Ark symbolizing God's presence. And Jerusalem being God's city. God's presence is returning to God's city. And as David is operating his kingship kingship from this place of rest, I don't need to make the earth spin around. I don't need to destroy my enemies. I'm going to sit here and have a meal and have a feast in the presence of my enemies because the Lord prepares my table. As he rests in the Lord... And operates not out of the fear of disappointing people. But out of the faith of resting in the safest place there is to be. He watches as the Ark of the Covenant makes its way back to the holy city. The presence of God being back in the holy place. And 2 Samuel 6 tells us that David dances mightily before the Lord. David is stoked. David is playing. David is so got his compass set to true north. That as the things of the Lord come about, and as he watches the Ark of the Covenant return to the holy city, he goes, this guys, this, I don't think you're on my level right now, but this is what gets me so stoked and sat. In fact, I am so stoked that I could just, oh my gosh. And then he runs over there and does this little dancing maneuver and people are looking at him like the people in his court that, uh, you know, give advice to the king and they're like, guys, what's he doing? And they're like, kind of catching on they're like oh my gosh this guy's got some moves right David dances mightily before the Lord and at first it would appear to be foolishness most of the time when people see play they say Psh, ah, play is foolishness it's for immature people who just can't get with the program. Well, you know who's saying that? The Marthas. 
and the Pharisees and the people who are busy taking themselves so seriously that they can't even stand to see anybody else have fun. And they look at somebody dancing mightily before the Lord and they say, oh, nah, that is wrong. You can't dance before the Lord. He wouldn't like that because our God only likes serious stuff like Martha's and Pharisees and people who are zealous for the law and people who do everything perfect. But hang on. I thought David was a man after God's own heart. Maybe David knows something that we don't. Maybe this guy whose compass is set to true north is in on something that we're not in on. Maybe he gets it a little more than we get it. Or than Martha got it. Or than the Pharisees got it. Maybe David's heart is beating in the same pace as God's. In such a way that he goes, I know what's up the road, you guys. The house of God forever. And now I see God's presence coming back to God's city. And all I got to do is dance. This isn't irresponsibility. This isn't foolishness, although it appears to be to the over-serious types. But you know those over-serious types? You know who they're taking seriously? Not God. Not the ways of God. And not the house of God forever. They're taking themselves seriously. In fact, so seriously that if you don't take them as seriously as they take themselves, you're out. You're immature, insignificant, foolish. Get out of here. They'd probably look at this king warrior, shepherd, poet, ruddy, leader, and say, 30 years old, and you're dancing like you're five. What are you doing? David is playing. He's dancing mightily, for the Lord. He's dancing his heart out for Jesus. Because he's playing. Because he says, I don't take myself too seriously. I take the kingdom of God very seriously. And his presence is in the holy, the holy city. And that is cause for celebration. 
and I will dance like there's no tomorrow. In fact, I will dance like I am in the house of God forever. Maybe David knows something that we don't know. Play. Over serious, over religious, legalistic, religious people, Pharisees, Marthas, you know what they have? It's almost like spiritual depression. And they're so down on things that they want you to be down with them. Play in the kingdom of God is spiritual buoyancy. You know, like a buoy out on the ocean. The waves are coming and crashing and throwing it everywhere, but it's buoyant. You know? When the waves of life come at a person who is seriously founded in God, who God reaches down into the deepest parts of their soul. Those people have spiritual buoyancy and not spiritual depression. The waves of life don't get them down. And the waves of life don't keep them down. Like a buoy on the ocean. The waves come and toss them to and fro and they're right there bobbing around. What's up? I know what's good. I know what's coming. The house of God forever. When the storms rage around them, they're resting at the table of the Lord in the presence of their enemies. In the valley of the shadow of death, they're resting. They're dwelling there. And they're playing there. Their circumstances don't dictate their behavior or their attitude or their demeanor. See, to be fair, let's be honest and be fair, there is irresponsible play. There is foolish play. There is. And that's going with disregard and living according to whatever the flesh says is good. I would call that irresponsible play. Foolish play. Giving in to just pure desires. True play and true spiritual buoyancy comes from a depth of relationship with the Lord that is so deep that the soul is in tune with God so deeply its desires are for good things its soul is at peace 
Because the Lord is its shepherd. The joy and spiritual buoyancy go down so deep that it can play, not in the foolish, irresponsible way, giving in to its own desires, but saying, I will work for the Lord and I will walk towards true north and I will live to dwell in his house forever. And as I walk there, I will be so dang happy because I'm coming to meet him and he's coming to meet me. A soul at rest and a soul at play. I'd like to have those. Here's the thing though, what are we anticipating? Let's talk apocalyptic language, all right? What comes to mind when we say apocalypse? Like probably things burning, cars turned upside down, zombies are coming in the door right as we speak and they're going to eat us all. Apocalypse, ah, scary stuff, right? The world is over kind of stuff. It's associated with hopelessness. The apocalypse. In reality, if you look at what the word apocalypse means, it actually just tells us that it's revealing something, something future. Apocalyptic something is revealing something. I'll tell you this, if our version of apocalypse is filled with sorrows and zombies and overturned cars and fires everywhere, I wouldn't want to go there either. I would want to stay right here right now and have as much irresponsible fun as I can muster. I would want to make as much money as I can to go spend it on whatever I can because the future is just no good. But is that the true case with the apocalypse? In fact, if we're talking about apocalypse, the Bible is apocalyptic, prophets are apocalyptic, pastors can be apocalyptic. God coming to earth and Jesus is apocalyptic. It's like in those things, God's peeling back the curtain. And he's just showing us a little snapshot of what is behind the curtain. The mystery that the future holds. You're like, I don't know everything that's behind that curtain, but I know that it's good. C.S. Lewis said this. A real Christian allows his mind to run up the sunbeam to the sun. You get it? He allows his mind to run up the sunbeam to the sun. He sees the beam of light coming from something greater. And he goes, oh man, that something greater must be really good. 
The true Christian allows his mind to see the sunbeam, the dim hints about the future. The true Christian sees the apocalypse, the peeling back of the curtain, the little hint about what's ahead, and says, oh my gosh, whatever causes that brilliance to shine into this dim present must be amazing. The house of God forever. The glory of the Lord and Him glorifying His people. Wow. It's kind of mysterious, but whatever's up there, I want that. And what is up there for us? A bigger, better version of the Lord preparing a table in the presence of our enemies. Because up there, where true north points, in the apocalypse, in the house of God forever, there's no more tears, and there's no more crying. There's no more enemies. There's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more worries. Whatever we have cause to be anxious about. Because our shepherd leads us there. And he knows better than these dumb sheep. What we need. Where we would run ourselves off a cliff if we could, I'm sure. He leads us by still waters. He lets us lie down in green pastures. He prepares our table in the presence of the enemies to tell us of something greater. The wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what we have to look forward to. Eternal rest and eternal play. The wedding feast of the Lamb. A giant party in eternity that goes on forever and ever. How about that? sounds a lot better than zombies and overturned cars and fires, right? Maybe the zombies and cars and fires are the valley of the shadow of death. And with our true compass and with the Lord protecting us with his rod and his staff, we need to run forward with all our might, not trying to spend life not disappointing people. But run forward and dance with all our might, like David. Because the presence of the Lord will be in the holy city, and we will be there with him. Him with us, and us with him. The most magnificent thing that is beyond our imaginations. And if that's what we have to look forward to, we can rest and we can play and we can stop trying to look busy and we can stop worrying about what people think and we can stop spending life not disappointing people and spend life discerning what God wants us to be and go be that mightily like David was Amen?
Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your glorious future that you hold for us. And thank you that you lead us by still waters into your mercies. Uh, thank you that your plans are good and that your hope is real. And that we can run after you into a future that is certain because it is in your hands. God, help us to rest better, more restfully. And help us to play, play better more playfully. God, refresh and restore our souls and light up our futures before us. Help us to run the race with endurance. In your name, amen.